Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? The Hounds of Tindalos by Frank Belknap Long I'm glad you came, said Chalmers. He was sitting by the window, and his face was very pale. Two tall candles guttered at his elbow, and cast a sickly amber light over his long nose and slightly receding chin. Chalmers would have nothing modern about his apartment. He had the soul of a medieval ascetic, and he preferred illuminated manuscripts to automobiles, and leering stone gargoyles to radios and adding machines. As I crossed the room to the settee he had cleared for me, I glanced at his desk and was surprised to discover that he had been studying the mathematical formulae of a celebrated contemporary physicist, and that he had covered many sheets of thin yellow paper with curious geometric designs. Einstein and John Dee are strange bedfellows, I said, as my gaze wandered from his mathematical charts to the sixty or seventy quaint books that comprised his strange little library. Plotinus and Emmanuel Moscopulus, St. Thomas Aquinas and Frenical de Bessy stood elbow to elbow in the sombre ebony bookcase, and chairs, tables and desks were littered with pamphlets about medieval sorcery and witchcraft and black magic and all of the valiant, glamorous things that the modern world has repudiated. Chalmers smiled engagingly and passed me a Russian cigarette on a curiously carved tray. We're just discovering now, he said, that the old alchemists and sorcerers were two-thirds right, and that your modern biologist and materialist is nine-tenths wrong. You've always scoffed at modern science, I said a little impatiently. Only at scientific dogmatism, he replied. I've always been a rebel, a champion of originality and lost causes. That's why I've chosen to repudiate the conclusions of contemporary biologists. And Einstein, I asked, a priest of transcendental mathematics, he murmured reverently, a profound mystic and explorer of the great suspected. Then you don't entirely despise science. Of course not, he affirmed. I merely distrust the scientific positivism of the past fifty years, the positivism of Haeckel and Darwin and Mr. Bertrand Russell. I believe that biology has failed pitifully to explain the mystery of man's origin and destiny. Give them time, I retorted. Chalmers' eyes glowed. My friend, he murmured, your pun is sublime. Give them time. That's precisely what I would do. But your modern biologist scoffs at time. He has the key but he refuses to use it. What do we know of time, really? Einstein believes that it's relative, that it can be interpreted in terms of space, of curved space. But must we stop there? When mathematics fails us, can we not advance by insight? You're treading on dangerous ground, I replied. That is a pitfall that your true investigator avoids. That's why modern science has advanced so slowly. It accepts nothing that it can't demonstrate. But you... I would take hashish, opium, all manner of drugs. I would emulate the sages of the East. And then, perhaps, I would apprehend what? The fourth dimension. Theosophical rubbish. Perhaps. But I believe that drugs expand human consciousness. William James agreed with me, and I have discovered a new one. A, a new drug. 
It was used centuries ago by Chinese alchemists, but it's virtually unknown in the West. Its occult properties are amazing. With its aid and the aid of my mathematical knowledge, I believe that I can go back through time. I don't understand. Time is merely our imperfect perception of a new dimension of space. Time and motion are both illusions. Everything that has existed from the beginning of the world exists now. Events that occurred centuries ago on this planet continue to exist in another dimension of space. Events that will occur centuries from now exist already. We can't perceive their existence because we can't enter the dimension of space that contains them. Human beings, as we know them, are merely fractions, infinitesimally small fractions of one enormous whole. Every human being is linked with all the life that has preceded him on this planet. All of his ancestors are parts of him. Only time separates him from his forebears, and time is an illusion and does not exist. I, I think I understand. It will be sufficient for my purpose if you can form a vague idea of what I wish to achieve. I wish to strip from my eyes the veils of illusion that time has thrown over them and see the beginning and the end. And you think this new drug will help you? I am sure that it will, and I want you to help me. I intend to take the drug immediately. I cannot wait. I must see. His eyes glittered strangely. I am going back, back through time. He rose and strode to the mantel. When he faced me again, he was holding a small square box in the palm of his hand. I have here five pellets of the drug Liao. It was used by the Chinese philosopher Lao Tse, and while under its influence he visioned the Tao. The Tao is the most mysterious force in the world. It surrounds and pervades all things. It contains the visible universe and everything that we call reality. He who apprehends the mysteries of Tao sees clearly all that was and will be. Rubbish, I retorted. Tao resembles a great animal, recumbent, motionless, containing in its enormous body all the worlds of our universe, the past, the present, and the future. We see portions of this great monster through a slit, which we call time. With the aid of this drug I shall enlarge the slit, I shall behold the great figure of life, the great recumbent beast in its entirety. And what do you wish me to do? Watch, my friend, watch, and take notes. And if I go back too far, you must recall me to reality. You can recall me by shaking me violently. If I appear to be suffering acute physical pain, you must recall me at once. Charm, as I said, I wish you wouldn't make this experiment. You're taking dreadful risks. I don't believe that there is any fourth dimension, and I emphatically do not believe in Tao and I don't approve of your experimenting with unknown drugs. I know the properties of the drug, he replied. I know precisely how it affects the human animal, and I know its dangers. The risk does not reside in the drug itself. My only fear is that I may become lost in time. You see, I shall assist the drug. Before I swallow this pellet, I shall give my undivided attention to the geometric and algebraic symbols that I have traced on this paper. He raised the mathematical chart that rested on his knee. I shall prepare my mind for an excursion in time. I shall approach the fourth dimension with my conscious mind 
before I take the drug, which will enable me to exercise occult powers of perception. Before I enter the dream world of the Eastern mystics, I shall acquire all of the mathematical help that modern science can offer. This mathematical knowledge, this conscious approach to an actual apprehension of the fourth dimension of time will supplement the work of the drug. The drug will open up stupendous new vistas. The mathematical preparation will enable me to grasp them intellectually. I have often grasped the fourth dimension in dreams, emotionally, intuitively, but I have never been able to recall in waking life the occult splendors that were momentarily revealed to me. But with your aid, I believe that I can recall them. You will take down everything that I say under the influence of the drug. No matter how strange or incoherent my speech may become, you will omit nothing. When I awake, I may be able to supply the key to whatever is mysterious or incredible. I am not sure that I shall succeed, but if I do succeed, his eyes were strangely luminous. Time will exist for me. No longer. He sat down abruptly. I shall make the experiment at once. Please stand over there by the window and watch. Have you a fountain pen? I nodded gloomily and removed a pale green waterman from my upper vest pocket. And a pad, Frank? I groaned and produced a memorandum book. I emphatically disapprove of this experiment, I muttered. You're taking a frightful risk. Don't be an asinine old woman, he admonished. Nothing you can say will induce me to stop now. I entreat you to remain silent while I study these charts. He raised the charts and studied them intently. I watched the clock on the mantel as it ticked out the seconds, and a curious dread clutched at my heart so that I choked. Suddenly, the clock stopped ticking. And exactly at that moment, Chalmers swallowed the drug. I rose quickly and moved toward him, but his eyes implored me not to interfere. The clock has stopped he murmured. The forces that control it approve of my experiment. Time stopped, and I swallowed the drug. I pray God that I shall not lose my way. He closed his eyes and leaned back on the sofa. All of the blood had left his face and he was breathing heavily. It was clear that the drug was acting with extraordinary rapidity. It, it is beginning to get dark, he murmured. Write that. It is beginning to get dark, and, and the familiar objects in the room are fading out. I can discern them vaguely through my eyelids, but they are fading swiftly. I shook my pen to make the ink come, and wrote rapidly in shorthand as he continued to dictate. I am uh, leaving the room. The walls are vanishing, and I can no longer see any of the familiar objects. Y your face, though, is still visible to me. I hope that you're writing. I think that I'm about to make a great leap, a leap through space. Or, or perhaps it's through time that I shall make the leap. I cannot tell. Everything is dark, indistinct. He sat for a while silent, with his head sunk upon his breast. Then suddenly he stiffened and his eyelids fluttered open. God in heaven, he cried. I see. He was straining forward in his chest, staring at the opposite wall. But I knew that he was looking beyond the wall and that the objects in the room no longer existed for him. Chalmers, I cried, Chalmers, shall I wake you? Do not, he shrieked. I see everything, 
all of the billions of lives that preceded me on this planet are bare before me at this moment. I see men of all ages, all races, all colours. They're fighting, killing, building, dancing, singing. They're sitting about rude fires on lonely grey deserts and flying through the air in monoplanes. They're riding the seas in bark canoes and enormous steamships. They're painting bison and mammoths on the walls of dismal caves and covering huge canvases with queer, futuristic designs. I watch the migrations from Atlantis. I watch the migrations from Lemuria. I see the elder races. A strange horde of black dwarfs overwhelming Asia, and the Neanderthals with lowered heads and bent knees ranging obscenely over Europe. I watch the Achaeans streaming into the Greek islands and the crude beginnings of Hellenic culture. I am in Athens, and Pericles is young. I am standing on the soil of Italy. I assist in the rape of the Sabines. I march with the imperial legions. I tremble with awe and wonder as the enormous standards go by and the ground shakes with the tread of the victorious Hastati. A thousand naked slaves grovel before me as I pass in the litter of gold and ivory drawn by night-black oxen from Thebes, and the flower-girls scream. Ave Caesar, as I nod and smile. I am myself a slave on a Moorish galley. I watch the erection of a great cathedral. Stone by stone it rises, and through months and years I stand and watch each stone as it falls into place. I am burned on a cross, head downward, in the time-scented gardens of Nero. I watch with amusement and scorn the torturers at work in the chambers of the Inquisition. I walk in the holiest sanctuaries. I enter the temples of Venus. I kneel in adoration before the Magna Mater, and I throw coins on the bare knees of the sacred courtesans who sit with veiled faces in the groves of Babylon. I creep into an Elizabethan theatre, and with the stinking rabble about me I applaud the Merchant of Venice. I walk with Dante through the narrow streets of Florence. I meet the young Beatrice, and the hem of her garment brushes my sandals as I stare, enraptured. I am a priest of Isis, and my magic astounds the nations. Simon Magus kneels before me, imploring my assistance, and Pharaoh trembles when I approach. In India, I talk with the masters and run screaming from their presence, for their revelations are assault on wounds that bleed. I perceive everything. Simultaneously, I perceive everything from all sides. I am a part of all the teeming billions about me. I exist in all men, and all men exist in me. I perceive the whole of human history in a single instant. The past and the present. By simply straining, I can see farther and farther back. Now I am going back through strange curves and angles. Angles and curves multiply about me. I perceive great segments of time through curves. There is curved time and angular time. The beings that exist in angular time cannot enter curved time. It's very strange. 
I'm going back and back. Man has disappeared from the earth. Gigantic reptiles crouch beneath enormous palms and swim through the loathly black waters of dismal lakes. Now the reptiles have disappeared. No animals remain upon the land, but beneath the waters, plainly visible to me, dark forms move slowly over the rotting vegetation. The forms are becoming simpler and simpler. Now they are single cells. All about me there are angles, strange angles, that have no counterparts on earth. I am desperately afraid. There is an abyss of being which man has never fathomed. I stared. Chalmers had risen to his feet and was gesticulating helplessly with his arms. I'm passing through unearthly angles. I am approaching. Oh, the burning horror of it! Chalmers, I cried, do you wish me to interfere? He brought his right hand quickly before his face, as though to shut out a vision unspeakable. Not yet, he cried. I I will go on. I will see what lies beyond. A cold sweat streamed from his forehead and his shoulders jerked spasmodically. Beyond life there are, his face grew ashen with terror, things that I cannot distinguish. They move slowly through angles. They have no bodies, and they move slowly through outrageous angles. It was then that I became aware of the odour in the room. It was a pungent, indescribable odour, so nauseous that I could scarcely endure it. I stepped quickly to the window and threw it open. When I returned to Chalmers and looked into his eyes, I nearly fainted. I think they have scented me, he shrieked. They are slowly turning towards me. He was trembling horribly. For a moment he clawed at the air with his hands. Then his legs gave way beneath him, and he fell forward on his face, slobbering and moaning. I watched him in silence as he dragged himself across the floor. He was no longer a man. His teeth were bared and saliva dripped from the corners of his mouth. Chalmers, I cried, Chalmers, stop it, stop it, do you hear? As if in reply to my appeal, he commenced to utter hoarse, convulsive sounds which resembled nothing so much as the barking of a dog, and began a sort of hideous writhing in a circle about the room. I bent and seized him by the shoulders violently, desperately. I shook him. He turned his head and snapped at my wrist, I was sick with horror, but I dared not release him for fear that he would destroy himself in a paroxysm of rage. Chalmers, I muttered, you must stop that. There's nothing in the room that can harm you. Do you understand? I continued to shake and admonish him, and gradually the madness died out of his face. Shivering convulsively, he crumbled into a grotesque heap on the Chinese rug. I carried him to the sofa and deposited him upon it. His features were twisted in pain, and I knew that he was still struggling dumbly to escape from abominable memories. Whiskey, he muttered. You'll find a flask in the cabinet by the window, upper left-hand drawer. When I handed him the flask, his fingers tightened about it until the knuckle showed blue. They nearly got me, he gasped. He drained the stimulant in immoderate gulps, and gradually the colour crept back into his face. That drug was the very devil, I murmured. It wasn't a drug, he moaned. His eyes no longer glared insanely, but he still wore the look of a lost soul. They scented me in time, he moaned. I I went too far. What were they like? I said to humour him. He leaned forward and gripped my arm. He was shivering horribly. No words in our language can describe them. He spoke in a hoarse whisper. They are symbolised vaguely in the myth of the fall. 
and in an obscene form that is occasionally found engraved on ancient tablets. The Greeks had a name for them, which veiled their essential foulness. The tree, the snake, and the apple, these are the vague symbols of a most awful mystery. His voice had risen to a scream. Frank, Frank, a terrible and unspeakable deed was done in the beginning, before time, the deed, and from the deed. He had risen and was hysterically pacing the room. The seeds of the deed move through angles in dim recesses of time. They are hungry and athirst. Charmers, I pleaded to quiet him. We're living in the third decade of the twentieth century. They are lean and athirst, he shrieked. The hounds of Tindalos. Chalmers, should I phone for a physician? A physician cannot help me now. They are horrors of the soul. And yet, he hid his face in his hands and groaned, they are real, Frank. I saw them for a ghastly moment. For a moment I stood on the other side. I stood on the pale grey shores beyond time and space. In an awful light it was not light. In a silence that shrieked, I saw them. All the evil in the universe was concentrated in their lean, hungry bodies. Oh, had they bodies? I saw them for only a moment. I, I cannot be certain. But I heard them breathe. Indescribably for a moment I felt their breath upon my face. They turned toward me and I fled screaming. In a single moment I fled screaming through time. I fled down quintillions of years. But they scented me. Men awake in them, cosmic hungers. We have escaped momentarily from the foulness that rings them round. They thirst for that in us which is clean, which emerged from the deed without stain. There is a part of us which did not partake in the deed, and that they hate. But do not imagine that they are literally prosaically evil. They are beyond good and evil as we know it. They are that which in the beginning fell away from cleanliness. Through the deed they became bodies of death, receptacles of all foulness. But they are not evil in our sense, because in the spheres through which they move there is no thought, no morals, no right or wrong, as we understand it. There is merely the pure and the foul. The foul expresses itself through angles, the pure through curves. Man, the pure part of him, is descended from a curve. Do not laugh. I mean that literally. I rose and searched for my hat. I'm dreadfully sorry for you, Chalmers, I said as I walked towards the door. But I don't intend to stay and listen to such gibberish. I'll send my physician to see you. He's an elderly, kindly chap, and he won't be offended if you tell him to go to the devil. But I hope he'll respect his advice. A week's rest in a good sanatorium should benefit you immeasurably. I heard him laughing as I descended the stairs. But his laughter was so utterly mirthless that it moved me to tears. Two. When Chalmers phoned the following morning, my first impulse was to hang up the receiver immediately. His request was so unusual and his voice so wildly hysterical that I feared any further association with him would result in the impairment of my own sanity. But I could not doubt the genuineness of his misery, and when he broke down completely and I heard him sobbing over the wire, I decided to comply with his request. Very well, I said, I will come over immediately and bring the plaster. En route to Chalmers' home, I stopped at a hardware store and purchased twenty pounds of plaster of Paris. When I entered my friend's room, he was crouching by the window, watching the opposite wall out of eyes that were feverish with fright. 
When he saw me, he rose and seized the parcel containing the plaster with an avidity that amazed and horrified me. He had extruded all of the furniture, and the room presented a desolate experience. It is just conceivable that we can thwart them, he exclaimed. But we must work rapidly, Frank. There's a stepladder in the hall. Bring it here immediately, and then fetch a pail of water. What for? I murmured. He turned sharply, and there was a rush on his face. To mix the plaster, you fool, he cried, to mix the plaster that will save our bodies and souls from a contamination unmentionable, to mix the plaster that will save the world from Frank, they must be kept out. Who? I murmured. The hounds of Tindalos, he muttered. They can only reach us through angles. We must eliminate all angles from the room. I shall plaster up all of the corners, all of the crevices. We must make this room resemble the interior of a sphere. I knew that it would have been useless to argue with him. I fetched the stepladder, Chalmers mixed the plaster, and for three hours we laboured. We filled in the four corners of the wall, in the intersections of the floor and wall and the wall and ceiling, and we rounded the sharp angles of the window seat. I, I shall remain in this room until they return in time, he affirmed when our task was complete. When they discover that the scent leads through curves, they will return. They will return ravenous and snarling and unsatisfied to the foulness that was in the beginning before time, before space. He nodded graciously and lit a cigarette. It was very good of you to help, he said. Will you not see a physician, Chalmers, I pleaded. Perhaps uh, tomorrow, he murmured, but now I must watch and wait. Wait for what? I urged. Chalmers smiled wanly. I know you think me insane, he said. You have a shrewd but prosaic mind, and you can't conceive of an entity that doesn't depend for its existence on force and matter. But did it ever occur to you, my friend, that force and matter are merely the barriers to perception imposed by time and space? When one knows, as I do, that time and space are identical, and that they are both deceptive because they are merely imperfect manifestations of a high reality, one no longer seeks in the visible world for an explanation of the mystery and terror of being. I rose and walked toward the door. Uh, forgive me, he cried. I didn't mean to offend you. You have a superlative intellect, but I, I have a superhuman one. It's only natural that I should be aware of your limitations. Phone if you need me, I said, and descended the stairs two at a time. I'll send my physician over at once, I muttered to myself. He's a hopeless maniac, and heaven knows what'll happen if someone doesn't take charge of him immediately. 3. The following is a condensation of two announcements which appeared in the Partridgeville Gazette for July the 5th, 1928. Earthquake shakes financial district. At two o'clock this morning, an earth tremor of unusual severity broke several plate glass windows in Central Square and completely disorganised the electric and street railway systems. The tremor was felt in the outlying districts and the steeple of the First Baptist Church on Angel Hill, designed by Christopher Wren in 1717, was entirely demolished. Firemen are now attempting to put out a blaze which threatens to destroy the Partridgeville Blue Works. An investigation is promised by the mayor and an immediate attempt will be made to fix responsibility for this disastrous occurrence. A cult writer murdered by unknown guest. Horrible crime in Central Square. Mystery surrounds death of Halpin Chambers. At 9am today, the body of Halpin Chambers, author and journalist, was found in an empty room above the jewellery store of Smithick and Isaacs, 24 Central Square. The coroner's investigation revealed that the room had been rented furnished to Mr. Chalmers on May the 1st, 
and that he had himself disposed of the furniture a fortnight ago. Chalmers was the author of several recondite books on occult themes and a member of the Bibliographic Guild. He formerly resided in Brooklyn, New York. At 7am at Mr. Ellie Hancock, who occupies the apartment opposite Chalmers' room in the Smithick and Isaac's establishment, smelt a peculiar odour when he opened his door to take in his cat and the morning edition of the Partridgeville Gazette. The odour he describes as extremely acrid and nauseous, and he affirms that it was so strong in the vicinity of Chalmers' room that he was obliged to hold his nose when he approached that section of the hall. He was about to return to his own apartment when it occurred to him that Chalmers might have accidentally forgotten to turn off the gas in his kitchenette. Becoming considerably alarmed at the thought, he decided to investigate, and when repeated tappings on Chalmers' door brought no response, he notified the superintendent. The latter opened the door by means of a pass key, and the two men quickly made their way into Chalmers' room. The room was utterly destitute of furniture, and Hancock asserts that when he first glanced at the floor his heart went cold within him, and that the superintendent, without saying a word, walked to the open window and stared at the building opposite for fully five minutes. Chalmers lay stretched upon his back in the centre of the room. He was starkly nude and his chest and arms were covered in the particular bluish pus or ichor. His head lay grotesquely upon his chest. It had been completely severed from his body, and the features were twisted and torn and horribly mangled. Nowhere was there a trace of blood. The room presented a most astonishing appearance. The intersections of the walls, ceiling and floor had been thickly smeared with plaster of Paris, but at intervals fragments had cracked and fallen off, and someone had grouped these upon the floor about the murdered man so as to form a perfect triangle. Beside the body were several sheets of charred yellow paper. These bore fantastic geometric designs and symbols, and several hastily scrawled sentences. The sentences were almost illegible and so absurd in content that they furnished no possible clue to the perpetrator of the crime. I am waiting and watching, Chalmers wrote. I sit by the window and watch walls and ceiling. I do not believe they can reach me, but I must be aware of the doles. Perhaps they can help them break through. The satyrs will help, and they can advance through the scarlet circles. The Greeks knew a way of preventing that. It is a great pity we have forgotten so much. On another sheet, the most badly charred of the seven or eight fragments found by Detective Sergeant Douglas of the Partridgeville Reserve was scrawled the following. Good God, the plaster's falling. A terrific shock has loosened the plaster, and it is falling. An earthquake, perhaps. I, I never could have anticipated this. It is growing dark in the room. I must phone Frank. But can he get here in time? I will try. I will recite the Einstein formula. I, I will... God, they are breaking through. They are breaking through. Smoke is pouring from the corners of the room. Their tongues... Oh! In the opinion of Detective Sergeant Douglas, Chalmers was poisoned by some obscure chemical. He has sent specimens of the strange blue slime found on Chalmers' body to the Partridgeville Chemical Laboratories, and he expects the report will shed new light on one of the most mysterious crimes of recent years. That Chalmers entertained a guest on the evening preceding the earthquake is certain, for his neighbour distinctly heard a low murmur of conversation in the former's room as he passed it on his way to the stairs. Suspicion points strongly to this unknown visitor, and the police are diligently endeavouring to discover his identity. 4. Report of James Morton, 
chemist and bacteriologist. My dear Mr. Douglas, the fluid sent to me for analysis is the most peculiar that I have ever examined. It resembles a living protoplasm, but it lacks the peculiar substances known as enzymes. Enzymes catalyze the chemical reactions occurring in living cells, and when the cell dies they cause it to disintegrate by hydrolyzation. Without enzymes, protoplasm should possess enduring vitality, id est immortality. Enzymes are the negative components, so to speak, of unicellular organisms, which is the basis of all life. That living matter can exist without enzymes, biologists emphatically deny. And yet the substance that you have sent me is alive, and it lacks these indispensable bodies. Good God, sir, do you realize what astounding new vistas this opens up? 5. Excerpt from the Secret Watches By the late Halpin Chalmers what if, parallel to the life we know, there is another life that does not die, which lacks the elements that destroy our life? Perhaps in another dimension there is a different force from that which generates our life. Perhaps this force emits energy, or something similar to energy, which passes from the unknown dimension where it is and creates a new form of life in our dimension. No one knows that such new cell life does exist in our dimension. Ah, but I have seen its manifestations. I have talked with them. In my room at night I have talked with the doles, and in dreams I have seen their maker. I have stood on the dim shore beyond time and matter and seen it. It moves through strange curves and outrageous angles. Some day I shall travel in time and meet it. Face to face. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? The hounds of Tinderloss, my friends. Thank you for joining me on this weird tale penned by Frank Belknap Long, or as I seem to want to call him, Frank Belknap Young. I must know a Frank Belknap Young. You know how you call somebody like Sarah Smith, and you go, Sarah, and she goes, I'm, I'm really called Sheila Smith. I must know a Sarah Smith, and you know, and you're calling somebody. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with the Belknap Long family, but um, I, I do know the Belknap Youngs, obviously. Anyway, let me tell you something about Frank. So Frank was born in 1901, 1901 in Harlem, New York, not Harlem, the Netherlands, and died in 1992, aged 92. So he obviously hadn't had his birthday that year, in Manhattan, New York. He was a prolific writer of horror and science fiction, and most of his career wrote for the Pulps. You see, this this was published in 1929, so that was the golden age, wasn't it? And they continued through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and kind of died out. I think his work was put into those pulpy 1970s novels that I loved so much in the 1970s when I was a, a youngster. And uh, there you go. Now, he is known best known for his contributions to the Cthulhu mythos. Now, you must know, you listeners, that the Cthulhu mythos arises from the works of H.P. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, the reclusive providence. 
So anyway, in 1921, when um, Frank was just a young lad, he's only 20, oh, yeah, 20, he, he did a, a story called The Eye Above the Mantle and he got it published and it caught the eye of Lovecraft and Lovecraft thought it was rather splendid. Now it was, I don't, I can't remember the story, but it was, it's a pastiche of Edgar Allan Poe. So obviously I'm going to say something about Poe. If you look at Poe and Lovecraft and this one, it's, they're very histrionic writers, aren't they? They do crazy, crazy dudes all the time. And that's why they're so fun to read out. I mean, you know, like Telltale Heart or The Black Cats for Poe. And then I did The Hound by Lovecraft and it's just, they're just so over the top like this one. So I did indulge myself. I'm sorry about the whale at the end, but I quite enjoyed doing it. And I enjoyed doing the pacing. So we do something quite um, mundane. I'm glad you came. And then some screaming abdabs about things from the planet Faf and the Hounds of Tindalos, which don't appear to be dogs, in fact. I guess he calls them hounds because they're like bloodhounds and they're on your trail, but they're not. There's nothing hound-like. Of course, there's something about the hounds of Tindalos and potentially this mistake that they are actual dog-like things that has caught the um, the attention and the imagination of various other writers who have also added to the Cthulhu mythos. So, just in case you're not aware, uh, Lovecraft wrote a lot of stories with not like you know, like Tolkien. You've got Tolkien and all his books, the world, the world that they describe is, it's like history. This happened in the second age on such and such a date and there's this. Whereas the, um, the Cthulhu mythos is far vaguer. People add things, there are contradictions in it. There are, you know, I think if you went into the details, you wouldn't find it as consistent as you find Tolkien's world or Game of Thrones or something like that. There's no, there's no real consistent word, world building. And they're kind of like um, the King in Yellow uh, and all of that the Carcosa stuff accreted itself to the Cthulhu mythos uh, by different authors. And people have used the Hounds of Tindalos, uh, Lumley and uh, Ramsey Campbell and people have used the Hounds of Tindalos because there's this idea of these supernatural things that hunt you down. And uh, Chalmers' problem was that he went too far back in time. I mean, you know, easy done, especially if you take weird Chinese herbs that have been lost for centuries and you end up going far too back quintillions of years before the creation of the world. I think the other thing that's interesting about this story, and I was going to kind of talk about him and I'm now going to say something about the story, but it's kind of all got mixed up really. One thing about the Cthulhu mythos is it borrows things from the real world to give it credibility. So Lovecraft was always inventing arcane tomes but he wasn't above borrowing real ones. And this has continued with things like the, the Call of Cthulhu as well, how, you know, newspaper articles, like in this story, and that, that purport to be real, and it adds some kind of veracity, except it doesn't. But, you know, it gives some weight to it. Talking about Tolkien, one of the things that he did was, in his story, so the Lord of the Rings, he has hints to the, the, the story of Gil-Galad and things that hint at depths. And, and I think this is what's happening here um, with all of these things. We use news, does the newspaper exist? If it does, it adds some kind of credibility to the story as if, the, well, this might actually be true. Um, although I don't think it is. But uh, you never know, they might come for me now. But I haven't travelled too far back in time. I only go back to last Wednesday. And that was due to uh, a bottle of Krabby's ginger ale. So uh, alcoholic ginger ale. But it only got me back to last Wednesday. So goodness knows I keep off the ancient Chinese drugs or any other drugs. There. Any other drugs, actually. Actually, yeah. 
Yeah, so what I was going to say, my point is how he uses Einstein. There are some interesting philosophical things in this, I think, as well as. There are some things about it that are really good. I quite like the histrionic style of it, to be fair, and the, the gibbering idiot. It's unkind to call him an idiot. He's not an idiot. He's a very clever man. He's just uh, insane, as Chalmers says. So in no particular order. So Einstein, he uses Einstein and Einstein's theory of relativity, which says basically time's different for every one of us. Time depends on the perceiver. Now, Einstein didn't like, well, he didn't really like quantum physics. And I'm no physicist, but I understand that one of the key factors of quantum physics is that the universe depends on the beholder it depends on the conscious knowing of it yeah now and that leads me to another side step Chalmers there's a couple of names I want to comment on in this for completely different reasons Chalmers you may have heard about an Australian philosopher called David Chalmers who coined the phrase the hard problem of consciousness and I think this is relevant because modern science since the enlightenment is based on this idea that we live in a material world and that somehow this material world through the complexity of the human brain generates this subjective experience, right? So matter comes first and bizarrely and unfathomably it creates the taste of lemons or the smell of oranges or, you know, the fact I can feel my bottom slightly uncomfortable because I've been sitting in this chair a long time. You know, these qualitative experiences, qualia, as they call them. So how does it do that? And Chalmers says, we've got not the beginning of the shred of a clue. Um, how does matter create mind? And he's called the same name as this guy here, Halpin Chalmers. So Chalmers, his second name is the same as a, a later philosopher, because David Chalmers is much younger than Halpin Chalmers in this story. He didn't. He wasn't born, I don't think, when um, The Hounds of Tindalos was written. But, you know, he says, you know, how, how can matter, how can we explain this? And we don't really seem to be able to. And I say, jokingly, well, it's the same kind of thing as how, how we explain. We just cannot get our heads around how um, cows run lollipop factories, you know. We just can't figure out how they could do it. And the reason that we can't is because they don't. And the reason we can't figure out why matter creates mind is because it doesn't and it's the other way around matter is only experienced through mind mm. yeah you want to stick that in your pipe and smoke it if you're not one of us idealists already i'll have you uh, convinced after listening to a couple more of these but i think you know he's, he's playing with this and this idea of um einstein's and he throws it in for a bit of spice i think a bit of seasoning to the story, add a little bit of credibility and credence and interest to it. This idea that um, good and evil are represented by, um, they're not actually good and evil, they're not moral, they're just a destruction and creation perhaps. He doesn't call it that, but maybe that's what it is. And one is represented in curves and the other is in angles, which I think is a glorious idea. And, and in keeping with the Cthulhu mythos, because things, I mean, Lovecraft does some really clever things as well. Or, or striking things. And one of the things he does is you think about the colour out of space, the colour. So this is the quintessence of the of the weird, just juxtaposing things that should not be. So how can a colour be so threatening? How can an angle be so threatening? And yet in, in these stories, they create it. And that really is weird. You know, this does not occur. And we find it vaguely unsettling, which I think is perhaps... I actually think the reason why people use it is this idea of um, spectral bloodhounds, the hounds of Tindalos. Tindalos, as far as I can tell, doesn't mean anything. I look the word up. There's a word, Tindu, which in Tindo in um, 
Indonesian or something means is a kind of tree. That's about it. So I think it's made up. But you know, and we start off. I've just seen my first notes, which of course the ideal thing would be for me to read my use my notes and make the notes or use the notes, Tony. But I don't. And my mind just goes. But I've just seen it now. And it talks about Halpen Chalmers prefers illuminated manuscripts to adding machines and leering stone gargoyles to automobiles. He has a long nose and slightly receding chin. His booklet is stuffed with medieval pamphlets about sorcery, witchcraft and black magic. Though surely they're all the same thing. But again, I'm going like, yeah, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? What's not normal about that? You know, I, I tap my nose. I look at my books. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm with Chalmers, really. Anyway, the name Halpin. Yeah, Halpin. Ambrose Bierce wrote a story called The Death of Halpin Fraser. Those are the only two times I've ever come across the name. Maybe it's really common in the States, but uh, I've never come across it at all. And maybe Frank was actually echoing Bierce, who also is a great writer and uh, wrote a lot of weird tales. So maybe that is that a deliberate callback to Ambrose Bierce, or maybe it is really a common name. I called, uh, we lived in Wales, and I probably sent that to you, when the girls were born, my daughters were born, and I called one of them Catherine, which is a really common name in Wales, but not in Cumbria. So it's really unusual. And so she, I'm not sure, I think she's kind of pleased about it. So that's that. Um, I am keeping on going. I've had COVID this week. <clears throat> it wasn't too bad, actually. For about two days, I felt a bit miserable, but I still worked through it. I was working remotely from home, speaking to patients. I was possibly a little bit more ratty than normal. Who would have known? So now Sheila's got it. Now Sheila is downstairs with COVID, blaming me for giving it. You know, I'm like, Lo, listen, the last two and a half years, the world has been shut down by COVID. It is not my fault. It really isn't my fault. But she half does think it is my fault, really. And I've been out today because she isn't able to walk. We've got Shade. So Shade is not our dog. It's um, Sheila's son's dog. But I took took Shade to Gelt Woods near Brampton today. Oh, it was glorious. Did about six, seven miles. And uh, most of it through, didn't meet anybody through these woods. The, se- the, the middle part by the River Gelt, which is beautiful, is um, was busier. But the other parts going through, I came across a sand quarry of all things that wasn't working because it should give you a timestamp. It's Easter, Saturday the 16th of April 2022. Yesterday was Good Friday, Easter Sunday tomorrow. So there wasn't much going on. I'm a bit worried because I bought myself. I, I used to play a lot of, um, you may know I write the Dark World stories, which are lit RPG, so they're stories set within a computer game. For many years, I've played a lot of computer games, and I haven't really for the past four or five years because I know how to swallow how they swallow up my time, and I've succumbed. I just when I had COVID, I was like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to record. Although I did, uh, I just want to do computer games. You know, I don't want to do anything improving. I don't want to be reading books or journals. I've got a copy of The Spectator and The New Scientist and The Fourteen Times, which I like, and I'm reading some Haruki Murakami. IQ84, he's great. I'm reading a couple of books on Jungian psychology. I wish I could just focus on one book, but then I don't focus on one anything. So there we are. Okay, so I was going to give you a little update on me trying to make Shade and the Black Cat friends. I don't think it's going to work because, first of all, Shade doesn't notice the Black Cat a lot, and the Black Cat's pretty stealthy, and actually they're famous for being stealthy, so I don't know why I'm surprised. The other day I went out the back and the black cat had a mouse, a dead mouse, which I guess it had killed. 
you know, so don't get upset about that because, um, well, you can if you like, okay, but the cats didn't seem to care. And it's a very pretty cat. And it had the mouse and it saw Shade and Shade saw the cat and got very excited. And she ran after the cat and the cat just like loads quicker and went under the door. And Shade's going up and down, up and down, up and down, looking for it. And I took Shade to the door and went, she went in this cat flap. Not that I want Shade to catch the cat, but I, I was just perplexed. The Shade was really casually like, what's going on? And I think you can get anxious if you don't understand the world. So I wanted Shade to understand the world. And I took her and she smelt the cat. And I think that was okay. But I don't think they're going to be friends. And I think it's the cat's fault. Because the cat could have made overtures to Shade. Shade did chase a, a pheasant down a path today. So maybe she's just getting into chasing things. But, you know, the cat, the cat. So on our street, it's a big long street, on the right hand side, well, it depends which way you're going out. From the back, the right-hand side, it gets rougher. You go further down, it gets a bit rougher. On the other side, the left-hand side, it gets a little bit posher, without getting really posh. Uh, but the cat lives two down on the posh side, so I think the cat thinks it's a bit of a cut above shade. You know, it's a bit of snobbery involved here. I may be wrong. I'm, I'm often wrong, apparently. People tell me. I don't believe them, though. But, you know, I have to, in the interest of modesty. So anyway, thank you for listening and being my friends and supporters and commenting and all of those things you do. We're a bit um, stuck in terms of, we've been beautifully listened to on both YouTube and Apple and Spotify and all these things. But if you know any friends, but actually I said, they used to say this back in the old days, I don't even care if you like them. You know, just tell people you think you think would get on with this. They go, yeah, you want to listen to that classic ghost stories podcast, mate. And if they are your friends, that's beautiful. If they aren't your friends, yeah, still works for me. But okay, all right, you all take care. Happy Easter. Isn't that so? Isn't that so?